Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. From Pineapple Street Studios, it's the 11th. I'm Liz O'Lear, a performer and comedian in Brooklyn, and this... So I'm your first one? Yeah, you're my first one. ...is my grandmother, Bernie O'Lear. Bernie is short for Bernadine. Nobody ever guesses that. They always guess Bernice, which I hate, or Bernadette, which is okay. (laughs) But I'm Bernie O'Lear. About a year ago, my grandma, who's 82 now, sat down to write a letter. One she never had any intention of actually sending. It was mostly just for her and for her friend, Del. Okay. I met this particular friend when I was in eighth grade. I heard a lot about Del over the years. She was my grandma's best gal pal, but I never met her. So I asked my grandma to read the letter to me. Some of us joined an all-girl basketball team known as the Carteret Gems. We had lots of horror stories and lots of fun stories to share. We now had time to take day trips or even just enjoy a movie together. Not only that, but we discovered how much we matured through life's challenges and opportunities. I can't tell you why, but unsent letters always seem to find me. So many people over the years have told me about letters they've written to exes or to old bosses or to their estranged parents. Letters they've never sent for one reason or another. So they wind up sitting in a box, in a closet, or wedged in the cover of an old book. I've even found letters on the sidewalk that never made it to their receiver. And yes, they're dirty and disgusting. And yes, I pick them up and keep them. There are too many years of too many memories to recall right here. The reason my grandma wrote this letter is because Del passed away a few years ago, rather suddenly. But the same thread is sewn through all of these memories. We were friends from the beginning until the very end. And I did not have a chance to say goodbye. That is why I would like to be able to say thank you, Del, for all the memories and all the good times we had together. Unless I miss my guess, Del is writing a new play, Dancing to the Tunes, of the 50s, and cooking up some delicious recipes from her amazing collection of cookbooks. God bless. That's it. Thank you, Grandma. Thank you. Sorry. She meant a lot. (laughs) Yeah. I love unsent letters, in part because of what they say, what they reveal about day-to-day lives of regular people, but also what the mere fact of writing them can do for someone. I am so happy that I got this off my chest. Yeah. Because I didn't even realize I I would do something like this. Mm. All I did was realize that there was something missing and it was saying thank you. Yeah. I didn't get a chance to say thank you. Yeah. Or goodbye. This month on the 11th, I have two incredible stories about unsent letters for you. Two stories about people who are trying to reach out, trying to say something important, but for one reason or another, 
can't actually say it. So they have to write it down. We're gonna start in Pittsburgh with a brother and sister I sat down with recently, Bill and Dara. Their father passed away earlier this year and what they discovered in his final days was maybe more revealing than any conversation they had ever had. My name is Bill Brunei Jr. I am the son of Bill Brunei Sr. and the sister to Dara Brunei. Brother. Oh, and I am the brother to Dara Brunei. Sorry. <laughs> and I'm Dara Brunei. I am Bill's brother and also the daughter of... Sister. Or sister. <laughs> We're great at this. Should we do that again? <laughs> My dad was tall. What was he? Six, six one. Six one. He loved to wear cut off jean shorts <laughs> that were from like the seventies, but still wore them. Yeah, he had a, a Mr. Potato Head shirt that he always wore. He had a California, California raisins. Raisin shirt, yes, that he always <laughs> wore. Um, my my dad was a lifelong. Well, he, I can't say that he wasn't a lifelong smoker. He stopped eventually, but he smoked Marlboro cigarettes, and he would save the miles. And that was our job, was to cut the cigarette packs and rip them out. (laughs) (laughs) And he had a cabinet full of, um, like, dinnerware from Marlboro. The sleeping bag that I slept in was Marlboro brand. Oh, my God. Yeah. What was his presence like? Like, when he walked into a room or, like, when you were around him, what did it feel like? You know, if my dad walked into a room, you wouldn't even... I don't think you'd really notice. Like, he was very quiet, just would sit in the corner, keep to himself kind of person. He, you know, in a, in a public setting was very reserved. Um, now one-on-one, if you sat down with him, he was very comfortable and able to talk, but not exactly gonna be the kind of person to get the party started. So was he the type of dad who gave advice then, or kind of let you, he's more hands favorite word, advice. Oh, really? Yes. <laughs> we should have brought that, too. So um, when we were young, um, it was after my parents got divorced. My dad had always said, um, I will never tell you what to do, but you can always come to me and I'll give you advice. And mm. he had my sister sit down with me and we wrote the dictionary definition of the word advice on a piece of like spiral bound <laughs> loosely loose paper. paper. <laughs> and we, we wrote it in pencil, but we traced over it with like various colored markers. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, it, well, like each letter was a different, yes, color. every letter was a different <laughs> color. Correct. <laughs> of course. <laughs> and, um, he framed it just a cheap picture frame. It was, uh, it was a very gaudy gold. Gold, yes. Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. the paint was flaking off of it. I mean, it was just a dollar store frame. And he hung it in his kitchen. And whenever we would go to his house, if we came to him with a question or a concern, not only as children, but even as adults, he would just turn and point. And I still know that definition off by heart today. Say it. Advice is an opinion given about what action to take or how to do something. Mm. And he never took it down. It was in the same place for the entire time that uh, he was alive. So we're going to move on to now when uh, your dad started to get sick. Can you tell me the story about when your aunt found your dad collapsed? So I was at work um, on a Friday. It was before lunch. And... um, I got a call on my cell phone from her, which is very unusual for her to call for any reason. She said that my dad um, was found unresponsive in his bed in his house, um, that he had been taken to um, a local hospital and uh, that he was in the emergency room. So we showed up to the hospital, Dara and I, and um, man, he, uh, he, was, he was bad off. He was 104 pounds. And at 6'1", that's very, like, your bones. Like, the gowns were just hanging on him. Yeah. He was hooked up to all the machines, and he was just curled up, like, in the fetal position. And um, he could talk, although... It was a whisper. You had to lean down to hear him. 
And uh, he said only two things in that time. He said repeatedly over and over again, water. Yeah, he was very thirsty. Um, And the only other thing that he said whenever we were in there is uh, sorry. So what was wrong? He had stage four lung and esophageal cancer. Oh, I'm so sorry. Thank you. Can you tell me about the day you found the the first letters? Um, it was about the third day he had been in the hospital, and I had went to the house and to get something. Socks. I was going to say something like socks, like it was something silly. You know, my aunt was with me, and I walked back into the kitchen, and his t- his bar top was just covered. I mean, covered with papers and chapsticks and just weird combination of items and he had birthday cards for everybody with everybody's name on them addressed to them and everything stamps ready to mail in order of like whose birthday was when I was in the kitchen I turned around and I I saw the letters they were in the advice picture frame like tucked into the corner it had our names on it and I was like oh the letters were dated 2018 that's what I thought And the first line was, if you're reading this, I am gone. November 10th, 2018. If you're reading this, I'm gone. This has been a thing he's known for years, that he was sick. First, let me say, both of you were great children that grew into smart adults. The two of you made me proud to be your father. Thank you. Dara, please take care of any banking. What was running through your head when when you first opened them? It was chaos. I was just screaming and crying, and it was it was a thousand emotions at one time. Destroy any charge cards and unused checks. Bill, sell whatever you don't want. My aunt, you know, she was talking to me, and I was just, like, crying. And I said, you know, why wouldn't he let us help him? Or, I can't believe this, yeah. this house looks like this, and I can't believe these letters are four years old. And he knew and didn't tell us. Right away, call Prudential and put And her only response really was, you know, your dad really liked to keep to himself and he didn't ever want to ask for help. He was too proud to ask for help. She said, do not confront him. Did you agree with her or? I, I did. I knew we didn't have long, so I didn't want to anger him. So then what happened next after you found the letters? I calmed down, and then I I kind of did, like, a walk through the house. So I kind of, like, went through each room and just looked around. And then I had went up to the attic. Everything was kind of in the middle of the room and covered in plastic. Like those plastic tarps for, like, painting yes. type of thing? Yes. There was a kind of, like, a metal trunk. When we opened it up, there was all kinds of, like, toys from when we were little. And that's when I noticed, like, these notebooks that he left. Well, Dara came into the room, and uh, she was mad. (laughs) And this is at the hospital? Yes. In your father's hospital room? She came in, and she handed me the letters, and um, Dara told me, um, don't read this in the room. And then she left to go get something to drink, and then I read it in the room. So <laughs> You followed directions so far. <laughs> so what did your letter say? Um, mine was also addressed in uh, 2018, and it was an if you're reading this, I'm gone letter as well. The handwriting was printing. My dad always printed in all capital letters. Um, I do that as well. So do I. So... Um, <laughs> It it wasn't a very overly emotional letter. He did say that um, I had turned out to be a good adult um, Mm. and that he was, you know, proud of me for the stuff that I had accomplished, but it wasn't anything specific. And then it was mostly directions. I have a will in your Aunt B's safety box at PNB in Bloomfield. Everything that's in the house, take what you want. Don't fight over anything, of which I don't know what we would fight over. The marble dinnerware. Yeah, yeah. I wanted that sleeping bag. We, we cut it in half. You know, it said... Um, For a long time now, I knew that I didn't want my body buried in dirt. He doesn't so want a funeral. He doesn't want a viewing. He doesn't want a memorial. He doesn't want a marker. Um, Nothing. He doesn't want anything at all, here and gone, he said. Your memories are enough for me. My ashes to be put into moving water. Stream, creek, lake, ocean, 
just not the river. He was very explicit. Not the dirty Allegheny not River. The dirty, not the dirty <laughs> river, and he, he underlined it. <laughs> so We went out in the hallway and talked about it a little bit, and she told me that she had found three packages of two notebooks each. They are spiral-bound steno pads, like uh, legal notepads, kind of. Um, my dad had wrapped them in saran wrap and then wrapped them in tin foil and labeled them uh, Bill Jr. and Dara only. And Dara Lynn. Oh, uh, and Dara Lynn, yes. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and then two notebooks that were just loose in the trunk that were not wrapped up. There are eight notebooks that were addressed to my sister and I. So we went up to the attic and opened the notebooks to see exactly what was in there. Um, we unwrapped them, we laid them out, and then we just both took a random one and started reading through it. January 22nd, 1996. Hello, hello. Yesterday we ended a real nice weekend together. Only in the physical sense, though, because you're both always on my mind. It was real nice. Time. The time we have lost together has never stopped eating at me. It's the most precious thing humans have. I miss you, too. That was the one with my dad's first cat that he got after he got divorced, which was named Alice. Alice misses you, too. She smells everything you touched. But her bar stool is hers again. So whenever he would feel like sitting down and writing, he would date the entry and then just go through his thoughts. October 30th, 1994. Good afternoon, guys. You just finished lunch and now you're watching TV, so I've got a little time to write now. He would tell us what was happening with the weather. Today it's another beautiful day outside. Wall-to-wall sun. What the weather's like, he's, I wonder what you're doing, or tells us what we're doing if we're there. We all got up at the same time this morning. French toast was for breakfast. Then Bill played the game Dara rented, Pac-Man 2, and beat it. Me and Dara got the car washed and got lunch meat for lunch. Which is kind of cool to read because it's like, oh, like we were doing this, you know? Saturday, we had good weather. So after you watched cartoons, we ate lunch at Taco Bell and took a long walk to see my mom and dad. When we got back, it was time for me to start supper. Bacon sandwiches. Like I would read them and I'd be like, I have to stop. Like I'm living like I'm 12. He would kind of go into detail about his dating life here and there. June 20th, 1993. Tonight I'm going to break off a relationship with a nice woman. She wants to get close, and at this time I'm just not ready for what she wants. So my dad had a mantra where he said he would never allow himself to be hurt by another woman again. Um... He would start dating women in March of whatever year that he was in, and then he would break up with them before November. So he- That was like a rule, he said. Yes, because he didn't wow. want to have to buy anybody any gifts. He didn't want to have to- He didn't want to meet families. Relationship season is almost over. No dating from the last week of this month until January 2nd, 1997. I could use the rest. Almost every entry, he would say goodnight to us at the end of it. He'd tell us to take care of each other. I miss you, and I love you both very much. Take care of each other. That's a big part of what you two have together. Bye for now. Dad. I was surprised to know that he was keeping notebooks in the first place. Well, yeah. I mean, that, we were that was probably the most shocking part about the entire thing is like, coming upon them and saying like um like wow there's like a library here of a certain point in our lives it's like a separate world does the tone of the notebooks change at all as you go through them the tone definitely changes because we get older and he gets more resentful of the fact that we're going out and doing stuff on our own mm. he has a hard time dealing with that May 6th, 1997. You can't make it again this weekend. You're working Saturday. You didn't even talk with your boss like you said you would. I understand your position, son. Please understand mine. I get 96 stinking hours a month to be with my children out of 720 hours in a month. You bet your ass I'm going to be greedy for that little bit of time. When you get to 1997, where I'm 14, he's just like, well... 
Dara wants to go to a birthday party and Dara wants to talk on the phone and Bill's at work. And it's it's more of like a resentment of us growing up. Not having you around really saddens me. It hasn't been easy for me. I hate it. But I knew in my mind that we would get to this point someday. And I know in my mind and in my heart that we'll get through this just fine. And so when did your father pass away? My dad went into the hospital on March 11th, and he passed away one day before my sister's birthday on March 17th. So he I passed- asked him, I said, please don't die on my birthday. My last request. Yeah. <laughs> Why are these all unsent? Why do you think he never shared these? My dad was very closed and personal, kept to himself type of person. And I think that if he were to show these to us and we went over them, um, he would have actually had to talk about his feelings with us. So I feel like he, you know, wrote them. He addressed them to us. He wanted us to remember him. He wanted us to know uh, what he was thinking. But if he would have actually showed them to us when he was still here, we would have asked questions and he just didn't want to talk. Um. I do have one entry that I marked um, that I could read if you'd like me to that kind of sums up everything that he writes in the entire notebook. Yeah, why don't you read the entry? All right, so this entry is from August 24th, 1997. And how old were you when this entry was? I was 16 years old. I was 14. So he says, good morning, good morning. This time next week, I'll be making YouTube breakfast if you're both here. And I'll also start feeling depressed, knowing that soon you'll leave once again, and another 12 days will have to pass before I can see you again. In a few years, all of those feelings will go away. You'll be grown to the point that you'll make the choice of where you want to be and who you want to be with. I'm not talking about the time you spend between your mom and me, but time you'll spend with whoever you want. You'll be in charge of your life and be responsible for the actions that you take. Me, my job is to watch, suggest your actions now and then, listen for you to ask for advice. Most times I'll be quiet and let you make your own mistakes. That's how you learn once you get out of high school. Hopefully, I've shown you by actions and words just how much I love and care for you. Only time will show me if I've done a good job or not. In my head and heart, I've given all that's me. I wonder where you're at and what you're going to do today. The sun is out now, but rain will be back soon. Enjoy your last week of summer vacation. School starts in eight days. Today I'll do some laundry, read, I mean search, the one ads for a new job and get some important papers together for a Tuesday meeting. At some point, I'll go out for a while. That's my day today. I've only got one and a half months more to deal with women then I'll take a br- <laughs> then I'll break everything off and start, start over, over in 1998. I still, I still miss that damn cat, Alice. When I got up today, I called for her. I've done that every Sunday for so long. It will just take time to get into a different pattern. Last page. A new book will follow soon. Did all of this bore you to sleep? Or have I spent more time with you two? I have no other way to be with you between our weekends. Time for part-time dad to get moving now. I miss you too, and Alice. The good thing is that I'll see you two again. Take, Take care, care of each, each other throughout, throughout your lives. lives. Love, Love you. you. Dad. Bill and Dara Brunei live in Pittsburgh. Special thanks to Peter Gross for voicing the letters of Bill Sr. We will be back after this break. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. 
and it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now, and listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other other leading commerce platforms and sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24/7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odyssey podcast all lowercase go to shopify.com slash odyssey podcast now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash odyssey podcast at alma we know the connection between you and your therapist matters but if you're already feeling stressed and burnt out the idea of trying to find a therapist you really connect with can be overwhelming that's why Alma's focused on helping you find the right therapist for you. When you browse their online directory, you can filter your search based on the qualities that are most important to you. Then you can book a free 15-minute consultation call with any therapist you're interested in seeing, so you can get a feel for whether they're the right fit before you commit to a full-length session. Alma also makes it easy for mental health care providers to navigate insurance. That's why 95% of therapists in their directory accept insurance for sessions. So you can find care that's affordable without stressing about the paperwork. You want to talk to someone, but not just anyone. Alma is there to help you find the right fit. Visit helloalma.com therapy60 to schedule a free consultation today. That's helloalma.com therapy60. Wow, that's his cologne. It's really nice. Isn't that crazy? I also this the I know, and right? fuzzies. I know. Because yeah. I was in college, I wrote them in class. Yeah. You know? I recently heard about a stack of unsent letters, a big stack, and when I read them, what they showed was a young woman processing as intense of an experience as you can imagine, a series of events that should have happened over the course of a lifetime, but instead all happened over just a number of weeks. All right, can you introduce yourself, your name, and whatever you'd like people to know about you? My name is Sayward Darby, and I live in Brooklyn. I'm a writer and editor. I'm a Virgo, um, <laughs> and this sounds like a dating ad, so I'm going to stop now. <laughs> Perfect. All right, so we have a pretty big stack of letters in front of us. Uh, how many are there? About 63, 64 in total. I gave you guys about 32, I want to say, because um, I didn't want to overwhelm you. 32 is probably overwhelming. Wow. So you have double this size. I have like... double this size. Yeah. All right. So when did you start writing these letters? The years or how old were you? What was going on in your life at the time? Sure. So I started writing these letters in August of 2006. I started writing them right after my 21st birthday. Wow. Um, and that would have been the first week of my last year of college. Has anybody ever read these letters besides you? Nobody. Nobody. Never shared them with anybody. And not because I was, you know, hiding anything or even protective. I think they just always felt like they were for me. Yeah. Um, for me and for him. Who did you write these letters to? These letters are written to Harvey, who was my boyfriend in the summer of 2006. His full name was Harvey David John Wallace. He was 22 years old. And I wrote these letters because he he died very, very suddenly. I woke up one morning and he did not wake up. 
August 29th, 2006. Dear Harvey, You've been gone almost a month, but today is the first time I felt ready to write. Before now, I couldn't form sentences to put down on paper. My thoughts were broken, disjointed, sporadic. I'm not saying that this will be coherent or easy to understand, but I'm ready to try. To try and reach out to you. So, how did you and Harvey meet? <sighs> Harvey and I met on the island of Koh Samui in Thailand. Um, I was in between years of college, and I had gone there to, to Thailand to teach English to kids. And I was part of this volunteer program, and there was a lovely college student who was also on the program named Mercy. And uh, Mercy was like, I have this cousin. He's so great. He lives here in Thailand, and I'm going to go backpacking with him when I'm done volunteering. All I knew about him was that uh, he had survived the 2004 tsunami. So he was vacationing with his family in Thailand and was actually scuba diving. He was in the ocean when it happened and was pulled out to sea. Um, his family thought he was dead for several days. Um, and he had just been, I mean, understandably and inevitably really, really traumatized by it. And the way his cousin conveyed it was that he felt like finding himself again required going back to the place where that had happened and trying to be a part of that place. And so he had moved to Thailand to uh, become a dive instructor. Where are you? That's my first question. I don't know if you're alone, scared, confused, or if you're right next to me, Patrick Swayze style and ghost. We were at a hotel um, and I very distinctly remember Harvey like walking into like my line of sight. There was a light and he was like, you know, walked into the light and Harvey was beautiful. Like I, he was six foot four. He had this like kind of buzzed hair, um, which I later found out was because he had early onset baldness and was kind of vain about it all. Um, <laughs> and he had tattoos and he was, I mean, he was tan. He was just Oh, my God. And the life of the party, you know, like immediately sat down and was charming everybody at the table. And I mean, it's one of those moments you're just like, I just want to be as close to that person as humanly possible for as long as humanly possible. And I felt, I mean, terrible. I had a boyfriend <laughs> at the time, a college boyfriend who was a wonderful person. But, you know, I was 20 years old and um, we went to this rave together. You know, we were drinking, having a good time. And it was one of these situations where at a certain point you kind of lost everybody you came with because people went in their own directions, did their own thing. And I remember there was a moment where he was in front of me and he was walking through a crowd and it was, you know, the crowd's about to close around him. And I reached out and grabbed the back of his shorts because I was, I just knew it was like this instinct of, I just, I need to be again, as close to you, <laughs> as close to you as I can get. And so we spent the rest of the night drinking, dancing, eating these insanely delicious chicken sandwiches. And we had like a great conversation. He told me about the tsunami. He cried when he talked about the tsunami. Um, I felt like I had nothing to contribute because I had never been through anything profound. We got back to our hotel. And at that point, I think it was the just the two of us. And um, we went down to the beach. Sun, sun had just come up. And he was like, oh, let's go. Let's go swimming said, I don't have a bathing suit. And he looked at me like I was actually insane. He was like, like, who cares? He was a person who, for better and for worse, truly just thought rules were kind of meant to be broken. And I was a person who had always lived by the rules, things like you wear a bathing suit when you get in the water. Mm. It was like, just get it in your clothes. Like, <laughs> who actually cares? And we got in the water and floated around talking. And his cousin, Mercy, got there. And we all floated in the water together. I was just like, I just need to lick this person. I want to like just like eat this person up. Like he was just so, I don't know, incredible. I very distinctly remember sitting there thinking this person, like this yeah. person is going to, and I didn't know what that meant per se, but I was just like, this person is going to mean something. It sounds trite, but are you okay? Are you sad? Are you at peace? <laughs> Do they serve vodka tonics in eternity? Funny how a weekend fling can turn into a relationship and suddenly infinite time. Do you laugh when you see me slide on the linoleum of my kitchen floor or when I play with my cat or talk to her while she eats? 
Do you cry when I cry? Do you answer when I say goodnight? Do you reach back when I throw out my hand for you? Do you roll your eyes when I answer questions in class because my brain is so big? Something he used to say about me. Can you hear my thoughts, my voice, both, neither? Can you still smell my perfume when I spray it on in the bathroom? If so, do you still like it? So two weeks later, Mercy and I, his cousin, we went to Co-PP where he lived and I hadn't spoken to him in the interim. I mean, this is 2006. Facebook had existed for what, a year, two years at that point. We hadn't exchanged emails or we didn't, I didn't have a phone. You know, there was no way to communicate really. And he met us at the ferry dock and I went into his room. It was his apartment, so to speak. And I went in the bathroom, but I remember reopening the door and he was standing there and he like grabbed my face and kissed me. Nobody's ever grabbed my face and kissed me. It was, you know, just truly the best thing <laughs> that had ever happened to me. But I was like, we can't do this. Like, I have a boyfriend. I feel so bad. And he was like, I understand. But he kept kissing me. And then the next day, we went on this day trip. And he just found, like, occasions to touch me, you know, like, put his hand on me. We'd, like, walk through this little forested area to get maybe back to our boat. I can't remember where we were going. But he, like, stopped and kissed me. Truly, this sounds... <laughs> like a bad movie script. It's like he kissed me beneath the palms that were like dripping, but it was like actually like that. <laughs> um, and he, he said something along the lines of like, let's just have a little jungle makeout or something like that. Like he was just silly. And I think he, he was persistent, but not pushy. And I think, you know, it was pretty clear that I wanted to be with him. Needless to say, that night uh, was different. <laughs> um, and I did not did not say no to things. August 30th, 2006. Dear Harvey, everything reminds me of you. A shirt, my toothbrush, my tar-covered flip-flops, rice, bubblegum. I think Eggs. maybe as a defense mechanism, he my was of the mind of, you know, if this is a weekend thing, it's a weekend thing. I expect nothing beyond that. Gatorade, the Emmy Awards, my iPod, Tabasco, ESPN. It all reminds me of you. He and Mercy were leaving to go on this backpacking trip to Vietnam and Cambodia and Laos. And they were going to go on this trip for, I want to say it was six to eight weeks. I can't remember the precise timing. But a pretty long time. Pretty long time. I was like, I need, I had, like, I can't, like, this cannot be the end. But I didn't want to, like, invite myself along on their trip. The backpacking trip? <laughs> the backpacking trip. Because um, they had planned it together. And so I didn't want to impose. <laughs> um, but I also really, really wanted to impose. So I sent these emails that were so funny in retrospect. They're basically me being like, I am so miserable and I don't know what to do about it. Mercy's gone. I don't have any friends here. Like, what am I doing? And uh, very quickly he responded and was like, no sweat. Like, just come on this trip. Like, Mercy, it was Mercy's idea. She says it's great. And you're like, I suddenly feel so much better. I, I, I suddenly <laughs> feel so much better. And I landed in Hanoi, and I remember walking through security or whatever, and he was standing with Mercy just out on the other side of, like, these sliding doors, drinking a beer. <laughs> and I was like, this is just, like, the greatest adventure imaginable. September 6, 2006. Dear Harvey, did I tell you that I have a box of things related to you? It's a worn cardboard box I keep on the floor of my closet. Last night, I added some pictures and the England World Cup rubber band we found by the pool. I also put your black polo shirt in a plastic bag so that it will keep smelling like you. So I want you, I can't have you, and what I do have of you fits in a box. It doesn't even fill it. I put these letters in there to take up space. A part of me also feels like they will get to you. I may be crazy. I love you. I miss you. Forever in my heart. Love, Slinky. Were there any points that you started to feel like things were moving fast or it just felt right and just was happening? I know that there were moments where I felt like I don't want to get too 
close, which is hilarious because I was so close at that point. I was going to get my heart broken like one way or another. But if anything, I felt like I'm worried that this is going to devastate me. And so I want to, when possible, try to guard my feelings. I really tried to keep that stuff relatively in check. I often feel like I romanticize our relationship, though. Was it even a relationship? Did you feel as strongly as I did? Are my memories of us, whatever that means, exaggerated or even blatantly wrong due to my mindset and grief? Was it mostly about sex? Did you truly care about who I was, who I wanted to be? I think you did. I always will. But those elements of doubt remain and eat away at the good memories. But I'll leave you with my fear that I am remembering things wrong, building up what we had to something you never saw it as. These thoughts seem selfish, so I'll stop. I love you. I miss you. Forever in my heart. Slinky. You sign some letters as Slinky. What? What is that? What's Slinky? Slinky was my nickname. Um, This woman who was a volunteer with us at the teaching situation, she came up with it because I'm a pretty, like, skinny, flexible human. And she was like, you look like a Slinky sometimes. Because, like, if I was, like, in a van or something and somebody needed to sit sit in the smallest spot, I'd be like, no problem. And, like, you know, I'm basically like a foldable bike. September 18th, 2006. Dear Harvey, one of my new bosses, Doug, just asked me, what is that on your foot? Referring to my slinky tattoo. It happens all the time, actually, just like we used to joke that it would. And so we went to get tattoos and he got out like they had little stencils for different types of lettering. And he made like the the actual on the paper, you know, like the tattoo, the yeah, what was it called? The, like purpley yeah, 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 paper. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yep, yep. The, 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 the stuff. The transfer paper. Yeah, transfer paper. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> um, I just have this vis- like vision of him like he's so enormous, like hunched over the table, like writing slinky. So, uh, so I got the word slinky tattooed on my foot. Remembering that day and night at the tattoo bar is comforting. It was one of the best days of my life, and probably the first time that I knew how hard I was falling for you. Parts of the night are blurry, but others stand out crystal clear, like you sitting next to me when I got my first tattoo, or trying to look up my skirt, or standing in front of the seafood vendor with you touching my waist and insisting that we get fried shrimp and crab. And um, I woke up the next morning and I went into the bathroom and I was brushing my teeth and I looked down at my foot and I was like, oh shit. I have the word slinky on my foot. And I open the bathroom door. He's in bed. And I'm like, what? Oh, my God. What is this? And he just starts laughing hysterically. I think it's a really cute thing. I really like it. <laughs> Were you just surprising yourself so much every day? Every day. Truly every day. In Hoi An, this man came up to our dinner table one night and he was like, my name is Mr. Trung and I live in a village right outside the city. Would you like to come to my village tomorrow? Like I run these tours basically. And uh, we're like, sure. (laughs) And again, this is just like in, in a million years before this, I never would have said Yes, not not because I had fear, but just because it was like, why well, I don't do spontaneous things. But I think, you know, being with people I trusted, it was like, yeah, let's let's do this. And so he came and picked us up the next morning and we took motorbikes to his village and he showed us, you know, where they go fishing and we got to fish. And then he took us to this place where these little old women made these pots, like clay pots, and just were constantly throwing pots. And they were all exactly the same size, exactly the same shape. It was astonishing and then took us to his house and his wife made us this like feast and he pulled out an atlas and had us go through the atlas and show where we were from. And clearly like he did this with all of his guests. September 28th, 2006. Dear Harvey, I bought your cologne today. You probably already know that because I talked to you about it in the mall parking lot. I was just sitting in my apartment and I needed to be close to you. Scent is the closest I can get. So, hardly thinking, I got in my car, got on the highway, drove to Nordstrom, walked straight to the men's fragrance section, and bought a $44 bottle of Jean-Paul Gaultier cologne. 
Now me, my car, my apartment, everything smells like you. I may have set myself back by weeks. You died two months ago, today. Your birthday is Tuesday. I feel like I should buy you a gift. Bake an angel food cake with strawberries, like you were going to get me. P.S. My guy friend's girlfriend, Jenny, stopped me on campus to empathize because her high school boyfriend killed himself when she broke up with him. I always thought she hated me for almost sleeping with her boyfriend. Three times. I didn't know they were together. But she was genuine, kind, honest. I guess bonds form in unlikely times and places. Stupid smell. What'd that cologne smell like? <sighs> what did that cologne smell like? Well, the letters still smell like it, so... It's deep, slightly spicy, and dark, um, like sexy Christmas. <laughs> it's probably too much <laughs> from a cologne standpoint. It's so weird. It just smells like Harvey. Over the years, I've smelled it. You know, I'll be walking down a street or in a museum or something, and somebody walks by you, and, you know, you get that whiff. And all I can think is Harvey. With time, I've been able to see the ways in which, like, he was immature in his rootlessness and his kind of going to do what I want to do, um, you know, other other things be damned. But I think that, you know, in thinking back on that summer and everything that was so special about it is that I was like coming to know myself and the person I wanted to be in a way that I never expected. And he was absolutely like the catalyst for that. October 2nd, 2006. Dear Harvey, tomorrow is your birthday. You would have been 23. I want to do something, give you something, but I'm not sure what to give. Donate money, buy a Bloody Mary and fold the straw back, buy 24 on DVD, light a candle, throw you a message in a bottle. October 3rd, 2006. Dear Harvey, Happy birthday. Yeah, that's weird to say, particularly with an exclamation point. It has to be said, though, because I do sincerely hope that wherever you are, today is a happy day. I hope the powers that be offered you a drink in honor of the day you entered the world. I still haven't figured out how I want to celebrate today. My only plans now are to go to an oral sex workshop. No, I'm not kidding. With a friend who is writing about it for a magazine. At least I know that's something you would approve of and get a kick out of. I also sent a picture of you to Susan today. The one of you standing on the shore of Maya Bay with your arms raised in the I'm big pose. I love that picture. You, more than any person I've ever met, milked the world for what it was worth and thought of it as yours. Your playground, your kingdom, your home, your learning and teaching ground. I respected and still respect you so much for that. I wish I had the strength, courage, and means to raise my arms above my head and take the world by storm. God, Harv, do you know how amazing that is? Celebrating you, even on days beyond October 3rd, is so easy. You made it easy in what you said, what you did, and who you were. I hope other people are celebrating you for the same reasons I am. I hope they are doing so today. So without going into too much detail, can you tell me what happened to Harvey and only as much as you're comfortable sharing? Sure. <clears throat> okay. So <clears throat> we were in Laos and we were really at the tail end of our trip. If anybody has gone on the backpacking circuit in Southeast Asia, they know about, you know, do you want your food happy. <laughs> um, so they'll put drugs in it for you. Um, and so we had happy shakes um, and got really stoned and it was really nice and um, went to bed and then actually stayed in bed the entire next day. Like we were so, <laughs> so stoned that um, we stayed in bed till I want to say like three, four in the afternoon. 
kind of in and out of sleep, talking, having sex occasionally, but really just like having this like kind of incredible day in bed. And um, so that night uh, we went to dinner and Harvey did decide to have a shake. Um, uh, He's like, but I'm only going to have one. Like, it's going to be fine. We're going to get up, you know. And went to bed and we talked for a while before falling asleep. Maybe I was just super lucid or whatever, but I was finally able to say, I'm scared that I don't I don't mean that much to you or that I will not mean that much to you and you mean so much to me and I don't want to get hurt. And he was really loving and lovely about it and, you know, told me that I meant a lot to him. And he said, you know, for the next several weeks together, like, it'll be my job to, like, let you know it's okay to get close to me. And then we went to sleep. That's quite literally the last thing he ever said. Um, and I woke up and he didn't wake up. He was struggling to breathe, unconscious, um, tried to do CPR. Mercy came in. If Things are hazy, but, you know, I think she tried to do CPR too. And um, he just wasn't going to wake up. And like, several people, like, got him in a sheet, got him in the back of a truck, um, like, carried him in the sheet down the stairs into the truck. And... Mercy kept saying, he's okay, he's going to be fine, he's okay, he's going to be fine. And we got to, I guess it was a hospital, a clinic, I, you know, I can't really remember. And they took him into a room, and I was standing outside, and I just I just knew, like, I hadn't said anything, but I just I just knew. I was like, he's dead, he's dead, he's dead. And the a doctor, a nurse, somebody came out of the door, and I ran away. Because I could not, I could not have somebody tell me he was dead, and I just knew. And so I ran away. I ran across like a like a field parking lot. I honestly don't remember. And I stood next to a road and I just stood there and I was like, I can't hear it. I can't. I cannot have someone tell me that he's dead. And uh, and then, you know, however long, a couple of minutes, I walked back and Mercy just looked at me and she said, he's gone. He's gone. Um, so he died. I'm so sorry. Thanks. I'm sorry. I mean, I'm. it's funny, like, Every time somebody says, I'm sorry, I think I'm just so sorry for him, you know? Like, yeah. I met Joan Didion um, several months later. I had read The Year of Magical Thinking after he died, and it meant so much to me. Um, and I, she came to speak on campus, and I went and saw her. And I was like, you're not going to be a weirdo. <laughs> you're not going to go up to Joan Didion and be like, hi, Joan, let me tell you my story. Um, you're just going to go up and ask for an autograph and be like, your work means so much to me, whatever. And uh, I failed to do that, and I blurted out, like, I watched my boyfriend die like you watched your husband die. I'm sure I said your book meant so much to me or something like that. And she just looked at me and she said, you're far too young for that. And my reply was, he was far too young for that. And then she like nodded and signed the book. And Joan Didion always won for saying kind of exactly the right thing, like not something comforting, but just like, yeah, this is all, yes, we were all too young, you know? It was either that night or the next night that I started writing things down. Uh, Not letters. I just started writing random things, like things I remembered. He had black flecks in his eyes, little black spots peppering his brown irises, flaws in his eyes, like the sharp, crooked teeth you could see when he smiled. He always smiled on the right side first, like a small sneer, his lip rising, mischievously, over the sharp tooth. The family had decided to get him cremated, and then somebody somebody had to go back to the island to get his stuff, like the place where he lived. And I knew how much his people on the island meant to him. They were his chosen family. And I was like, it is unconscionable to me that someone would not tell them this news. And so um, Mercy stayed in Bangkok, and I flew to the island with my friend and um, Harvey's brother, and um, got to the island got off the ferry, walked to the villa. Again, like, I didn't even know people's last names. Like, I just knew there was, like, Chris, and there was Barry, and there was Luke, and there was Joe. And so I just started walking around like the fucking angel of death to find his friends and tell them that he was dead. And the worst part was their eyes, like, lit up when they saw me because they were like, Harvey's back, you know? Like, they were so excited because they loved him, and then, you know, I had to tell each of them that that he died and have to do that over and over yeah 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 but i will say that that was also for that like you know two three day period that i was there was also the least lonely that i felt because i felt like i was around people who knew him 
And then I came home and nobody knew Harvey. And so I just felt like it was like it hadn't happened. And not not his death. I mean, that was certainly part of it. But the summer hadn't happened. You know, all of these like big leaps I'd taken, all of this, you know, joy that I'd experienced, um, like this incredible love I'd felt for someone, attraction to someone, like it was as though it just kind of got sucked into a black hole. And um, I've never felt so alone. Never. October 16th, 2006. I had an intense dream about you last night. We met again in an abandoned house surrounded by water. We reconnected, talked, even made love underwater. But although you looked like you, you were, or at least your name, was Jack Peckman. A guy I dated in high school who I have neither seen nor talked to in years. I haven't the slightest idea what it meant or why you were in my subconscious as him. There's just no logical connection. I'm bad with segues. Back to these letters. I used to think that I wrote them for me. It's therapy, right? However, I now realize that I also write them for you. I have this need to remind you that I haven't forgotten you, that no one has. It's like writing to you somehow connects you with the world, with the living. And I know that doesn't make a lot of sense. Maybe none. Again, maybe this is all futile. I don't really know where I'm going with this. I think I'm feeling guilty because I know that I don't have the right to be as sad as your parents, siblings, or other family members. I do feel like writing letters in that space kind of protects your grieving process in a way where like no one can answer. You know, you're writing to the one person who can't answer and that's kind of a way of like protecting your process and being like, no one can say like, it is okay, don't worry about it or you should feel better by now. You can just be where you're at with the person that's making you feel that that you miss the most. Absolutely. I actually had never thought about it that way, but that's absolutely right. It's like the person, the only person I could be completely, or, you know, again, as close as words could get me (laughs) to, um, you know, putting my feelings out was the person who didn't respond. April 3rd, 2007. Dear Harvey, it's eight months today, eight months since you died. I wonder when months will come to no longer matter. Perhaps once a year has passed. Or maybe it will take longer. Maybe I will forever feel a pang on the third day of every month. As I do on every one of these days, I feel the need to be near water. I believe I may cry when I finally do see and immerse myself in the Pacific one day. I know I will suddenly feel closer to you, no matter how silly that seems. For what is left of you, your ashes, are a part of a million things by now. Nonetheless, I feel as though I will find you in the ocean, because to me, it is where you will always be. Do you remember when you wrote the last letter? So I've tried to remember this, and, you know, I definitely around the one-year mark stopped writing them so frequently. I want to say it was a couple of years later, um, but at that point, it was also like I wrote, you know, once every six months or something. And mm-hmm. how are you doing and what is your life like now? I'm great. Um, I actually, when I was going to have breakfast with Mercy last week, as I was walking where we had agreed to meet up for basically the weirdest second date of all time, I had this thought. I was like, I have a good life. Like, I really do. And um, and I said this to Mercy uh, that, that day, you know, this could have destroyed us, like, we both could have not gone back to school. We both could have become self-destructive in ways that we couldn't survive um, or at least not, you know, thrive after or through. And we didn't, either of us. And, like, we are people who are happy and um, have wonderful partners, wonderful pets. And I became a journalist. Harvey used to joke, actually, um, because he knew that I wanted to be a journalist. And um, he was like, I'm going to see you on TV one day. And be like, I slept with that girl. Um, and I did actually become, uh, become a journalist. Um, and uh, I love what I do. I have to resist the urge to be like, and now it is bookended. And like this experience is over. And my life is, you know, it's, it's, it, there are ups and downs. It's like being in the ocean and you're you're riding a wave um, and then things are calm and then you're riding a wave again and sometimes you don't catch the wave. July 25th, 
2022. Dear Harvey, what remains? That's a phrase I've considered a great deal over the last 16 years. In a physical sense, what remains of you is tucked inside the same worn cardboard box I started keeping these letters in right after you died. A strip of once clear packing tape is supposed to keep the flaps closed, but dust and lint have taken the fight out of it over time. Inside, there's your black polo shirt, an empty crushed pack of Marlboros, the last you ever smoked, a yellow baseball hat with the logo Go Harvey Go, the stencil for my slinky tattoo, other things, other fragments of you. What remains though means more than that, more than stuff, In my first letter, I told you that you took part of me when you left, and that meant we were bound for good. I still believe that, about being bound. Which, of course, you know. All the times I've stood in the surf of an ocean or sea, smiling out at you. All the times I've gone somewhere new, far-flung, that you never got to see, and I've silently or aloud welcomed you there. You know, you must know, that you remain with me, in me, around me. There's an E.E. Cummings poem that goes in part. Here is the deepest secret nobody knows. Here is the root of the root and the bud of the bud and the sky of the sky of a tree called life, which grows higher than the soul can hope or mind can hide. And this is the wonder that's keeping the stars apart. I carry your heart. I carry it in my heart. That's us. And I know you're thinking your brain is big. I have to stop myself from editing this. That's what I do, I edit. But I just want to write this straight out. So here we go. I'm looping back to the box, to the stuff. There's a copy of the Odyssey inside because you were reading that when you died. Sounds scripted, too on the nose, but it's true. I don't know how far you got into it, but there's one page dog-eared, 46, near the end of book two. Telemachus, now a young man, sets off on a voyage in search of his father. Penelope's selfish suitors bemoan his leaving, the trouble it might cause them. And Telemachus's nurse begs him not to go. What takes you that you must go wandering through the world, she asks. He tells her to have no fear. I imagine you like Telemachus, forever caught in the moment of embarking on a journey, always on the precipice of searching, of finding, of becoming. For a long time, I tried to imagine where you would have gone, who you would have been, what role I might have filled in your future. With time, though, I've come to see you as you were, floating infinitely and through the infinite, telling me to have no fear. This is where you remain in my mind's eye. Why did I stop writing you? Perhaps because I outlived you, past the age you reached. I grew up and you kept floating. Perhaps, too, it was because I was working toward the realization that the words I needed to say, to write, to hear, weren't directed at you. They were, and they are, about you. Your story. Our story. The story of that summer, about all that was said, done, gained, lost. The truth and the essence of it. I didn't need to share the story with you, because you know it. I needed other people to hear it, know it, and believe it. I saw Mercy again for the first time since your funeral. It was like no time had passed at all. I love her. She asked if I'll ever write our story. Maybe I will. Maybe I already am. Maybe it will be my life's project or one of them. And when I'm gone, it will be what remains. I'll talk to you soon. I love you. I miss you forever in my heart. Say word. That was really beautiful. Thanks, guys. (laughs) Sayward Darby is the editor-in-chief at The Atavist. She's also the author of the book Sisters in Hate, American Women on the Front Lines of White Nationalism. This month's issue of the 11th was reported by me, Liz O'Lear. It was produced by Eric Menel and Chloe Persinos, with editing by Leela Day and Kristen Torres. 
The senior managing producer is Asha Saludra. Mixing by Eric Menel. Visuals and marketing by Grace Chen, Moira Curran, Liz O'Malley, Kurt Courtney, and Meredith Rice. Legal services for Pineapple Street by Bianca Grimshaw at Granderson Desrochers and Crystal Tupcha at Odyssey. Episode art by Jonathan Conda. The executive producers at Pineapple Street are Max Linsky and Jenna Weiss-Berman. A big, big thank you to Bernie O'Lear, Bill and Dara Brunei, and Sayward Darby. Thanks for listening to The 11th. We'll be back next month with something entirely new and entirely different.